Hi, I'm Anna-Claire Harper, and you're listening to The Return, property and investment podcast, sharing insights and information on key topics from real estate technology to sustainability. Feel free to get in touch or follow recent news by connecting on LinkedIn, Anna-Claire Harper. Hi, and welcome to The Return, property and investment podcast. I'm Anna, and I'm delighted to be joined for the second time by Toby Wilde, who's the founder of Aparo, believed to be the first algorithm-driven investment company in the UK, and who was previously a founding partner of Spriff.com, which is the UK's largest centralized property data platform. So welcome back to the podcast, Toby. Thank you for joining me. Delighted to be returning to the return. Uh, thank you for having me. <laughs> Very good. So I know you're. Um, Is this the first return you've ever had on the return? Uh, no, it's not. But. Okay. One of the it's not. <laughs> Being honest. No, yeah. but it is, a, it is an honour to have you back. And I think a lot of things have changed since we last spoke. It sounds like your business has been growing at pace. And there's a lot of innovative ideas that I wanted to talk about as we go into kind of discussing myths and misconceptions. So I thought it would be great today to focus in on the myth that PropTech can solve property problems. I'm not so sure it's a myth that PropSec can solve property problems, personally. I think they can be part of the solution, but no one thing alone is going to solve the problem we have in the UK with housing. You know, it's mm-hmm. just, it is such a myriad of problems and issues that we're facing. It's going to take government intervention. It's going to take a change in planning policies. It's going to take a change in attitudes of people to realise that housing actually is more than just an asset class or something that should be done you know unfortunately landowners in the uk at the moment have all of the all of the power in terms of what we, we produce in terms of new stock alongside the councils obviously we I think we all accept we need to open up greenbelt and if you don't accept it then i don't i don't know what to say i'd it's just you know i think it's commonplace we can't keep on preserving all of this greenbelt surrounding towns um, when we have people who can't afford to have a house it's just outrageous in my opinion but Quite controversial for a, <laughs> for an intro. Okay, yeah, that's fine. I, I, I was I was gonna I was gonna dig quite specifically into not just prop tech because I think you're right. There's so many problems, there's so many possible solutions. But I think computer technology in particular, because I know that you're a big believer that computer technology can solve the problems. But just taking a step back from your opening controversial statement, <laughs> just let's just set the scene then. What do you see are the major problems in the sector that need solving? Residential property. So in terms of technology, lack of information, our first inquiry about properties. So... Uh, oh, I sort of meant the broader sector. Okay, well, lack of transparency. Bit, yeah. So but going back to your original question, so I'm answering the wrong way around, I guess. Sorry. All good. <laughs> yeah, I should point out it's early on a Saturday morning, so... Uh, <laughs> sure it's that early <laughs> yeah, it's not anymore we've been here for a few hours chin wagging so. um, anyway 2 p.m it's not that early on a saturday morning <laughs> sorry, sorry i catch up my sleep on weekends um no okay so it, go back to it so the big problems in the market yeah are i mean you alluded to them when, when you started speaking which is around the shortage of housing is there anything else that you sort of think around that that technology has the potential to solve i think data and transparency and more information at first inquiry are what the primary drivers technology can bring to us right so if we can get more information up front and if we actually know through big data what actually is required in that area demographically, then we can build the right housing to actually suit the market and the buyer's demand and you know the profile of the area. 
So I, I think they're probably the biggest drivers. But then also, you know, the transparency in terms of actually knowing what the pound per square foot is in an area and actually knowing accurately or being able to accurately forecast what the prices are, you know, in terms of going forward, how they're going to look in terms of capital appreciation. I think that's really, really key. Yeah, I think in reality, we have a problem in the UK where there's been too many new developers coming out there, new build developers coming out there who are, have unfortunately been propped up by capital that's probably not suitable to be in the sector, let's face it. You've got a lot of people, unfortunately, being propped up by retirees' pensions, by the peer-to-peer sector, who in reality, these people don't have the insight or the experience or knowledge to make that investment decision. They're promised a 10, 15% return, you know, with very limited security. And that's kept developers in the game overpaying for land and overpaying for development, which didn't stack. And I think for anybody who is a cautious developer or knows realistically what the price of eggs is, you know, we've looked at the last half a decade almost at the market, you know, looking at sites and like, how are they paying this? I can't get to those numbers. You know, it's 25% overvalue or 15% overvalue or whatever. And um, I got so sick of bidding against people who, as a family, this is. And we're not greedy people as a family. And, you know, it's a family business, which my dad's retired now. Anyway, we don't, you know, family business is pretty much just his portfolio that he lives off. But, um, you know, we weren't greedy, but we just got so frustrated because we saw all these fiscally irresponsible investments being made. And we're seeing it now. There's been about four or five property Ponzi schemes, effectively. And that's not me that calling them that. That's what the receivers are publicly calling them. That have gone under and lost you know, people's pension money to so tens or hundreds of millions. And we're seeing it every day on a smaller scale with smaller scale investments as well. I think there has to be more regulation of the sector in terms of an investment decision, especially sort of the peer to peer market. And um, I just hope that actually with the advent of data, we won't get to the position we were again 12 months ago, where you're seeing new builds trade at a 29.5% premium compared to conventional housing stock. I mean, it's irrational to me that you can look in cities like Manchester and you can see a two-bed flat for 250000 next to a two-bed terrace house of seventy-five. It just doesn't make sense, right? Mm. And actually, demographically, does the area need all of these flats? You know, Do they need actually for this style of development or do they need four-bed houses for families, right? Well, and that's kind of something I was going to call out, which is that, in my opinion, I guess the housing crisis isn't necessarily actually a shortage of housing. It's a shortage of housing at the right prices and the right locations where people want and need to live. And that's made worse by a shortage or a lack of the right kind of infrastructure and amenities where existing housing stock is. For example, you might take an old mining village well, if it was better connected and had a little bit more potential as a business investment area, then people would not not want to live there, if that makes sense. Double negative, a bit confusing. In my opinion, it's not a pure data issue. It's also a misunderstanding of the fundamental problem, which is that not necessarily a shortage of housing, a shortage of the right kind of housing in the right places at the right locations, which potentially could be improved in terms of our understanding of the problem and our analysis of the situation and how to solve it using data. Yeah. And so one of the things we do at Aparo is we actually look in areas for the supply of housing stock and how long that transaction time actually takes to take place. So in a specific postcode, let's say, I don't know, OX13 3JT, right? Mm-hmm. And with a quarter of a mile of that, we can see that actually you know, there's, uh, say, 40% of the market are two-bed flats that are for sale, right? Mm-hmm. 13% of the market are actually looking for two beds. The average time it takes to sell a two-bed there is nine months, right? But then if you look again at the same area, 
and you look, 45% of the market are looking for three-bed houses. Yeah. But three-bed houses only equate to 13% of the housing stock. So if you look at a development site as a rational investor and developer, you actually say, okay, fine, the GDP might be 15% higher by doing two-bed flats, right? Because you get more units. But if you look at the reduced cost of interest over that time, the reduced cost of transactions due to fall-through rates, because fall-through rates might be low on three-bed houses and two-bed flats, then also... You start looking at what the accurate planning is for the land and what realistically you can get over the line in a quicker time. Because you know you might take 18 months fighting a council to give you planning for those two bed mm. flats. If you go to them with this kind of data, you have a family housing problem in your area. I'm coming along, I'm going to buy this land, I will put you 10 three bed houses there. Do you want me to do it? Then effectively you can potentially speed up the planning process as well. And more importantly than that, you're actually creating stuff or renting stuff that people need and want. And I think that's a big part of the problem. And I think that works very well. If we had a more perfect market overall, the truth is one of the reasons behind the asymmetry in pricing that you mentioned earlier, for example, let's say a £250,000 flat in prime central Manchester versus a £75,000 two up, two down house that could house a family more suitably. One of the reasons for the difference between that is that different types of buyer are looking for different things and vendors have different information about properties than buyers. So for example, you might have mostly buyers who are of an international, more wealthy type for the £250,000 house and they may or may not want to live in it, but it may just be for them a safe place to put their money, which is or isn't fair, is or isn't right, depending on your perspective. (laughs) And I'm not here to comment on that, but I suppose the point is that that information asymmetry is kind of pervasive in terms of all of the issues that have been created as well as the solutions. I have no problem with people wanting to park their money or invest in things. But I just think in that particular case, ultimately, that market is going to be the fastest and the most readjusted in the UK, Mm. right, in my opinion. And it's been underwritten by developers giving five-year rental guarantees at 8%. Um, yeah, (laughs) and as we all know, anything that needs a rental guarantee to sell is fishy. (laughs) I did actually have a really nice one that came across my desk recently from a receiver. I say it came across my desk. We flagged it and we were engaging with the receiver. Problem is, as it was an attractive asset, there was a lot of interested parties. And it was quite a, it was quite a decent size. It was 20 million quid. Yeah, and they had about 40 interested parties. But it was a PBSA. But because of the current student situation, and it had two years of proven rental income... What the Proven bank, is different from guaranteed, right? No, no. The bank who owned the debt said they will underwrite the current income levels for the last two years because they have no doubt. But the problem is all the students have left. Mm. So in, realistically, due to COVID, which obviously is, you know, I think we're, I don't know what, how, when this will be released. So I'm not going to say what period we are, but we're in June. So it's kind of dying down, but it's not gone yet. But we certainly probably won't have the majority of universities in the UK back next year, right? Mm. Your, your old alum uh, is... Uh, Closed its doors next year, right? Cambridge mm. was the first to announce. Yeah, yeah. So no more Cambridge. Oxford will probably eventually follow suit. I imagine being competitive, they'll want to keep it as 50-50 as long as they can. <laughs> but um, So we've talked a bit about some of the problems around the housing crisis and why transparency is potentially a way to help solve them. How do you think computer technology can help resolve those wider kind of housing and investment issues? And is there stuff that needs to happen before it can? I don't know. I wouldn't say it can solve the housing crisis in any shape or form, aside from giving the right information to investors and developers at the right time to make more informed decisions, which de facto should. You're right. It's not the housing crisis. The problem is an inefficient housing market that isn't delivering what is needed because of information asymmetries. So a wider problem. Market inefficiency. Market inefficiency, yeah. 
But I think what it really can do as a developer and investor, it can reduce your cost of human capital. It's not bad deals that sink development companies. It's your payroll and it's your cost of capital. It's as simple mm-hmm. as that. It's never the market that puts you under. It's your cost of capital and your payroll. So I, I think mm-hmm. if, if you have... Cash flow and liquidity are key. Yeah, it's... Well, you know, my dad's, we went under in 92 and we had to lay off 400 employees. And my dad said it wasn't because we weren't profitable that we went under. It was because we ran out of cash. Mm. You know, uh, all, our employees, all our employees got paid up to date um, everyone we actually came out of a receivership with assets it ended relatively well for, for all parties um, it ended pretty well for all parties apart from us or the family but you know if you're the business owner you take the risk don't you and you deal with the consequences if the market turns against you or a strategy is wrong but the point is I think that technology can reduce your cost of human capital can speed up your investment decision making process and actually make you build products that are needed um, or certainly highlight to you projects that are needed you know mm-hmm. yeah exactly you know I'm, I'm not excited about building tower blocks of uber expensive flats like you see in voxel which are 30 million quid flats and you look in and you're like it's voxel well and exactly and i guess that's another fundamental problem which is that quite a lot of the time with new build buildings the price is determined not by existing local demand but by it's a price plucked out of the air sometimes yeah. or it's seemingly so <laughs> from the outside I think what I'm really excited about at the moment we briefly spoke about it beforehand but all of my data at the moment suggests that the collapse in studio and one bed prices due to the reduction in Airbnb to students and the dark economy shall we say (laughs) you you literally taught me about that (laughs) before before this I mean I had no idea I thought it was all students and wealthy international people but okay dark economy sure no well look Airbnb principally is tourists and dark economy isn't it let's put it that way but obviously well, I was so oblivious <laughs> and there's me putting my one bedroom flat on Airbnb the whole time <laughs> uh, no I was not the whole time I, just, I, just to be clear <laughs> yeah. no I mean look zone one I'm talking sort of where I live right so Westminster Kensington I'm Chelsea in, I'm in zone one Toby it's just south of the river so not not proper zone one no, no I'm, I'm only joking but look <laughs> someone who grew as, as someone, as someone who spent most of their childhood growing up in southwest London in you know my brother grew up in Pimlico lived in, on Tackbrook Street for well over a decade I lived in Fulham and Chelsea for for that time as well and you look at the kind of properties that actually would be suitable for first time buyers the studios your one bed sort of 400 up to 400k right which if you are a couple working professionals in London you can afford a mortgage on that theoretically right giving broad strokes here those kind of properties have been way overpriced and receiving much higher yield because you get 250 quid a night for them on Airbnb right so if we could get the GLA to enforce the 90-day rule, which is going to be very unpopular with a lot of people who actually listen to this podcast, I'm sure, because a lot of them will be rent-to-rent operators and it's seen as a no-money-down quick way of making money in real estate. I know a friend who's lost millions uh, on deposits and everything during the Airbnb crisis. I can assure you it's no, it's not risk. You can lose it all as much as, you, as much as you grow it. But if we can actually get them to enforce the 90-day rule and start like they did in Oxford University, finding a university for every student that's outside of student accommodation in London, then... We could open these houses and flats back up, you know, and this is maybe me as a Londoner saying this, but I, I think that our communities are, have already been hollowed out. If we can do something to try and bring that back, because there's not many community areas left and a lot of it is parking money, as we said earlier, a lot of it is Airbnb, which actually has no community feel to it. If we could try and build these communities back up again and release this housing stock for first-time buyers, I think that would have a positive social impact. And also, it allows outbound investment. Let's face it, do international students who have never lived in London need to be in Zone 1? You know, they don't have any family ties, they don't have connections to the area, you know, or, you know, it's kind of something to be said of, 
if you're renting, you know, PRS on and like a co-living thing, you can travel in if it's your first house in London, whatever. But, you know, communities need to be protected and people actually need to be able to buy stock. And I think that's a real societal problem. It's not fair for people who grew up in areas. And this doesn't have to be London. This is the same in Bristol. This is the same in Oxford. It's the same in, you know, dozens of cities around the UK. Why should people who grew up in these communities get to the point where they can't actually ever look at buying a house. I have brothers in their 30s and 40s who will never be able to buy a home in London because they'll never earn the money because they're in creative industries, you know, without family help, that is. So why should they have to move somewhere that's a 30-minute, 40-minute train journey and where they don't know anybody? You know, why do they have to move to Croydon or, you know, the top end of the Jubilee line in Wembley or something like that to be able to live somewhere? I think it's sad, you know? I look around the local pubs in an area and, you, you know, see every day people leaving and leaving and leaving, moving to Wales and moving to God knows where. I think if we don't do something to protect our community soon, it'll, you know, and actually solve a bit of the housing crisis, it could be too late, you know, in Some London. Controversial so. policies coming out today, Toby. So abolish the green belt. <laughs> not, no, not all the green belt. Ban Airbnb. Yeah. Okay, as well as that. Well, no, <laughs> Let's talk about prop tech. <laughs> no, no, okay, all right. When you say it like that, it sounds... Look, not all green belt, obviously. We do have a beautiful countryside and we need to protect it. But you can't be so sanctimonious as to say that, you know, two acres of land on the edge of the village where you've got nothing. Like, we own a plot in Roke, right? And, okay, so I own two acres, or my family own two acres in a little village called Roke. It is on the edge of the town boundary. It is a perfect little place to build a three-bed, four-bed little, you know, family house, right? And it's reasonably, it could be reasonably priced. But of course, they won't give you planning on it. Oh, it's outside the boundaries of the village. There's people who can't buy houses in this village until somebody dies here. How can you do that? So anyway, Greenbelt, I'm not saying all of Greenbelt. Airbnb, I think that's just automatic. I mean, other cities around Europe have already banned it because they've seen the problems it's causing to our society with antisocial behaviour, et cetera, et cetera. And then the final one was finding it students. That's not new either. Oxford University did it because we, Oxford has the biggest housing crisis in the whole of the UK. And someone used to manage 200 student properties there you shouldn't have family homes. It's a long process, but so this is starting to sound a bit like a soapbox. It though, is. Isn't it? Well, it is starting to get quite controversial. So uh, let's talk about algorithms. <laughs> let's bring it back. So how you're, I guess, a big believer in the power of algorithms in the property sector to improve certainty and systemization. Can they actually have the desired impact going, moving away from, I guess, the specific problems? Can they have that desired impact? around certainty and systemization? I think so, yes. But it's so our mantra, as it were, is algorithm-based, people-driven. You're always going to need a human element to execute on the deals and to make the decision. You know, although Apparo might be viewed by some as Skynet, because we, you know, can we, we can do a lot more appraisal a lot quicker. Wait, just talk me through an example of how an algorithm could help to improve certainty or systemization in real estate. Well, for instance, it's difficult to give exact examples without giving up too much of our IP. But as we discussed earlier in terms of actually knowing what to build, where to build, your planning constraints, your planning timeframes, that's obviously a key driver. Actually knowing market forces in terms of capital appreciation, you can, with relative certainty, start looking at areas based on key indicators and predict where capital appreciation will be going. Because real estate investment, as you, your mantra as well, as I know as mine, is you know for PRS, it's not an instant thing, right? You're looking at, you want to take be able to be in a position you can take a 10, 15, 20 year view on it. So if you can accurately forecast you know, realistically, what areas of the UK you are going to see decent capital appreciation or at least not depreciation in today's system, in today's world. But I'm not going to dig too far into the capital appreciation point, but I do think it's important to point out that capital appreciation for you as an investor means pricing someone else out 
of being getting on the housing ladder. However, <laughs> I definitely wanted to talk more about algorithms and not, technology in not, this not, episode. Not if real-time earnings keep pace with capital appreciation and inflation, which is another side point we could talk about. In no, 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 no. <laughs> Let's stay on algorithms. Okay. Um, but so, okay, fine. So, so that's a great example that you gave. How come not everyone is using algorithms to drive their decisions if they're available? Because they're not available. You know, there's only in the world, I think, three or four React funds or React investment houses. And React is real estate. And computer technology. So same way hedge funds trades revolutionized the way that, you know, listed indices or whatever they did. I'm not sure about banking. It's not my world. But the way they revolutionized basically the trading of equities and, and the markets using high frequency trading, et cetera, and, and more data and algorithms. React funds will do the same to real estate. So I think... But presumably on the assets, because you have to have a fund there in order to trade that quickly. We don't have the kind of liquidity of assets. Well, yeah, and I don't think we ever will. I think these these good concepts of tokenizing real estate assets, aside from your big institutional stuff, which is actually almost doing a disservice because you're almost driving the funds out of business themselves. If we, you know, that into obviously goes like went under yesterday. Not related though. <laughs> no, but if, if you can't tokenize assets to trade them in a real-time trading exchange, mm. then in reality you can you have all the algorithms you want but you still have to execute, which is why we're algorithm-driven people debased. Mm. Our algorithms flag financially stressed and distressed real estate assets, which are good for us to loan against or acquire, but we still have to have that human interaction to go and actually yeah. acquire them or to sign off on it. Because you know yourself, you know, all the data can point to one thing. Two, you go and view a property and you go, well, that looks like subsidence there, or that's going to need strapping there, or God, this place is in a terrible state. There's always going to be a human involvement in it, but it's about speeding up and simplifying transactions, due diligence, research, and just making more informed investment decisions. But I think everyone's going to have this technology in five to 10 years, right? Mm -hmm. Every real estate fund will, will have it. Somebody will work out how to do it as well as us and will white label it to them. So, and, you know, all the big guys or the people who have their own genius, like I do, Paul. So that's not me. I'm not saying I am. I'm saying Paul <laughs> is uh, when you find yourself someone who's that good and capable and knowledgeable about data and can see the matrix, then, you know, yeah, you'll get the big funds all copy us eventually anyway. I mean, it's going to happen. It's it's an obvious progression for the for the industry. Um, we just happen to be there, and I, I've been pretty vocal on the subject for a number of years. So, I mean, it, it's all through years of engagement and actual back testing of data as an algorithm and technology to actually make it viable. And you can't just switch on one day and it works for you. Uh, it doesn't work like that. It took us two, three years to actually get to the data and to be able to use the backdated data to actually look for these interactions to make it exciting. Uh -huh. And uh, one of the themes that I've heard frequently when speaking to more corporate players around their data and how they're using it is the struggle is often the quality of the data. It costs so much to actually get it cleaned up that it's almost not worth, it's almost worth starting from scratch. Yeah, unfortunately, on some data, you can't start from scratch because it's, you know, a lot of the data is government provided, right? Mm. Um, that's no secret. You look at all the property data platforms and they're using a lot of government data. Would it surprise you for me to tell you that I know a Quango uh, or a housing select, uh, a committee anyway, a government committee, were investigating, you know, the government infrastructure loans where they could borrow 2% and they went off and bought shopping centres, right? Mm -hmm. As investment. And there's a big worry about it. They could not find out how, what councils have bought what and what they paid for it and what the risk was to give it a credit profile and to actually try and do something about it. So they had to come to a data company and pay them. So they had to pay a data company to buy back their own data, That's government data. Mm. And they almost saying it's like, it's a good thing. It's like you're reading between the lines. You're like, you own that data. You can't work it out yourself. You've had to pay somebody like me 
tens of thousands of pounds to come and do the same thing for mm-hmm. you. It's astounding. But I agree, the data is terrible in some formats. Well, I guess I guess my point is, if the data is terrible, then it can be almost useless. It's that, what's it called, Gigo or whatever, garbage in, garbage out. It's not so much garbage in, garbage out. We have no unique identifiers for properties in the UK. And there's talk about the government finally introducing them. So you have almost like a barcode for your house. Every property will have a barcode, right? Because at the moment you have title numbers, you have mm. street addresses. You know, just because you call your house the Manor House, I might call it 17 the High Street but it's called the manor house, you know? Mm-hmm. It's, you know, this that's the problem. It's actually marrying up on a property-specific data the different key identifiers to actually make it to match it all. Mm-hmm. That, that's where the real struggle is. And yes, it is. Mm, it's kind of vested interest in not necessarily being entirely clear as well. I think it's incompetence, most of it, to be honest. Or... Toby's so controversial today. <laughs> no, that's, no, I think, no, what? It's, I think it is, you know? It's incompetence or it's a different format at the time. You know, people just miss boxes they miss a box they don't fill it in or they put in the wrong you know postcode or the wrong mm-hmm. price or you know you sit on property data you see you see a lawyer's filed the house and you're looking around the whole street and you're like this is really weird what, what's going on here it's, there's every single semi seems to be 157,000 pounds or there or thereabouts but then there's one next door which is 1.57 million you know it's just mm-hmm. like an added zero somewhere by accident so it takes work it takes time you have to fix the outliers and the incorrect data it's a long process. It's taken us a lot of time and cost us a lot of money. But it was expedited because, you know, we've done it before with Swift. You know, we knew a lot. We didn't come into this blind because we'd had years of experience in dealing with this and dealing with every local authority and trying to get all the planning data for every council and realising there was no way to do it except for them to get it ourselves, which they were completely open to. It's astounding that they, they said, look, we're not going to give it to you, but um, you're welcome to have it if you can get it. You know, that's kind of you know the attitude. So it's, yeah, it's going to be the future. By the time you cleanse all the data and fix it, you'll save so much money. You can make better investment decisions, which means you can actually look at mm-hmm. more projects with less uncertainty, less risk. And like I said, I, I really hope that now we're coming out of this era of peer-to-peer and people's pension money going into unsafe investment decisions or playboy property developers. I I really, really hope that this can be sort of the driver on it, that people, even if this white label or buy this kind of data from people like Sprift or Land Insight, then hopefully people will make more informed investment decisions and we'll see more strategic change we need within the housing market, but also less risk for the poor people who have been losing money hand over fist this year. I think it's important to recognise there's been, what, maybe two, three billion pound worth of property losses this year in terms of bonds and Ponzi schemes and stuff. It's sad because that is people's pensions, that is retirement, and that is their future. So I think it's important to recognise. But yeah, it's a real shame. All right. <laughs> well, we've, we've had some horrible stories today, but I'm glad you're solving them with all your <laughs> algorithms and systemizing, opening up data, as you said. There's actually a whole lot of advantages in terms of making the market more efficient the more we know, the better we can do. So um, before we tie up, I wanted to ask you one final question. Tell me about a myth you once believed about property or investment or business that you no longer believe and why. Uh, If you buy it, it will go up in value. Yeah. Yeah. The old adage of location, 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 I think is, uh, I think it's gone. It's now data, decision, deliver. Uh, Oh, good catchphrase. Thank you. Uh, not mine. <laughs> Alexander Shepard, our chief investment officer, came up with that one, I can assure you. Not, I'm not creative enough for that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think in terms of that, yeah, effectively, you need to make the right decisions. And yeah, you can't just buy anything and hope the market will save you anymore. Mm-hmm. It's not going to happen. We're not going to see the le- rapid levels of capital appreciation we've ever seen before. Okay, you might get 1% yeah. to 2% a year. In terms of general business, I think that 
I don't think it's so much a myth, but I think it's a real unfair title to put on people and to encourage people to be too much at the moment. And I, I recently spoke about this. Wait, what do you mean too much? As in that they're feeling no, not enough? No, I, no so I haven't even got to the punchline. So the term entrepreneur, right? <laughs> yeah. There seems to be this real societal-wide push for everyone to be an entrepreneur. You know, all these training courses. And Is there? <laughs> do, do you not see it on social media all the time? It's like entrepreneurs like big. Media. <laughs> okay. Well, it's like, it's almost like people to be idolized or to really aspire to be. Like, I think there needs to be more of a bit of clarification for people so they don't put more pressure on themselves. You can be a business person and run a really successful business and you might mm. sell that and do another one, right? An entrepreneur is somebody who's, you know, to use it old cliches, you know, they are effectively addicts, you know. Do you, do you not think there's probably some algorithmic bias in your home, in your feed, on social media and your internet, like your Google searches and so on? They're feeding you back what you want to hear. No, because I don't. I don't Google entrepreneur because I don't. People attach that title to me, and I suppose I'm becoming more of that because I've bought, I've built, sold, and scaled several businesses throughout my career now. And I, I want to get bored and move on to the next thing. I think it's just more about advertising. The point I was trying to make is I think people should need to be comfortable in what they are and who they are and what they want to do. You might not want to build this great business, and you might actually just want to have a little bit more money and have like a nice safe passive investment where you get sold a thirty grand course to become a property mogul or you know you might get encouraged that you have to be an, or you should be an entrepreneur and everyone should be an entrepreneur and have these you know thousands of great ideas and go off and do them it's almost an affliction right i think people yeah i think it's just more about be true to who you are and don't push yourself to be something that you're not it's actually kind of funny because I'm, so firstly i didn't know that that was a thing particularly but then i do kind of keep myself off social media i have a friend who just recently started a business and I guess I've been doing my own, running my own businesses for some years now, and I'd forgotten how hard the first part was. And she said to me, oh my gosh, now I understand. Everything is so hard. And I think we just forget about it. But I don't think everyone really wants that. I think once you understand that it's not glamorous at all (laughs) for the first part of any business, then I don't know, it's a more realistic decision. And, And maybe you're right, maybe this is glamorized, but and there's so many cool aspects of it, but I, I mean, I wouldn't do it. I don't think I could <laughs> go back to the corporate world, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised. And I don't you. think I don't think you could either. <laughs> I, I, I don't think you could go to the corporate world. I don't do it. I was at corporate. I was at oh, wow, corporate, corporate. I was at the second largest state agency in London, Kinley Falkard and Hayward. Mm-hmm. Uh, senior uh, senior position. There. Senior negotiator position, I should point out. It wasn't like management or anything. But, uh, <laughs> CEO. <laughs> no, no um, it's still by the same guy. But actually, do you know what? I was really glad to them because uh, before that, I was just this rascal little negotiator at 17, 18 who was running around like a lunatic. And they actually taught me to be professional and actually taught me that real estate and housing and life has consequences in terms of you know safety and stuff like that you can't move people in without gas certificates yeah well we were talking about this before the burden of compliance and the importance of it yeah but you know what? you're very lucky though because you don't wear the stress on your face me i, so you, I don't I, feel stressed honestly yeah. i kind of there's lots of challenges but I feel like I'm learning every day and I'm still, which is great. And I do remember when I was in the corporate world, after that, for me, learning is like a big, that's kind of what drives me really. I love learning new stuff and sharing ideas. And the moment that I stopped really learning that fast was the moment that I sort of felt like I couldn't really carry on in that. Yeah, I need new exciting new challenges. Big geek. But, <laughs> but now no, you probably work twice the hours for a third of the pay, right? But you own it one day yourself. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think there's um, for personally, I mean, I don't think that's necessarily true in terms of the financial arrangement. But 
I would say there's a huge element of value in lifestyle that can't be bought by money and not that it's super glamorous or anything but that you have a sense of purpose and enjoyment that comes with every day or every other meeting not every meeting um <laughs> but there's stuff that you enjoy so much that actually you can't put a price on that i again i let my missus do all the spending for me i literally i actually very it's very humble tastes um i barely spend any money but i've done it you know for me i've made massive salary sacrifices to build up all of my businesses because i you know i live to work effectively drive to mad literally i live to work um, but, but anyway it's uh, yeah and it's all worth it in the long term though and you know what like you said when you stop learning and you stop enjoying yourself and you stop growing that's when I that any business I've been involved with and stop growing or I've stopped enjoying it I'm out the door mm. as soon as I lose motivation that's it, I think over. that's it that's the difference between I guess the entrepreneurial types that I know and the more corporate types is that there is this element of forced reflection and the importance of purpose because you don't continue getting up and doing hard meetings and hard stuff and challenges every day if you don't have a sense of purpose and that's something that can't be really be replaced or paid for no i agree i have learned through it though i have to say don't sell companies to your friends and don't let other people try and manage them to just get you cash flow just clean break sell them on to the next thing or yeah keep them and just let them take it over by themselves if you can find but the problem is you're never you're never able to fully me my psychology i can never commit to something while i still have something else going on in the background mm-hmm. so i have to be all in or nothing and um yeah for me I business need to, monogamist a what a business monogamist a business monogamist yeah <laughs> yeah probably there we go Fair awesome well so if listeners want to find out more about you your business and what you do or just get in touch what's the best way for them to do that LinkedIn. I love LinkedIn. It's the only social <laughs> network. I have a Facebook account. Apparently I have an Instagram one as well. I've, I've never used it. But yeah, LinkedIn. I love Toby Wild on LinkedIn or tobywild.com uh, for all my personal stuff. But for my business, which is my baby and my mantra and my reason for going on, it's uh, aparo.co.uk. O-P-A-R-O.co.uk. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it as well. We'll speak soon. Yes. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Return. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review as this really helps other people to find the podcast.